0: Our text is in Mark, and though I will preach from verses 1 through 20 of chapter 5, I will start reading earlier. I'll start reading in chapter 4, starting at verse 35. So I'll read about uh, seven verses in chapter 4, and then go on to what you have in your bulletin. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was and other little boats were also with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Then they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2000 and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he had, has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears and that your Holy Spirit would guide us in understanding what it is that you are teaching them and what it is that you are teaching us we thank you now this day for all of your blessings. In Christ's name, amen. The reason I adjusted what I was going to read and started in Mark 4 to cover Christ's leaving and arriving was that these two are tied together in a very, very uh, meaningful way. And it sets the context for what then happens with this demoniac So the context is this, that just hours before, and probably not that long before they arrived here on shore and the demoniac demoniac is right there waiting for them, Jesus had performed that miracle. He had been sleeping in the stern of the boat. This had begun hours earlier uh, over near Capernaum where he had stepped into the boat. And that's why when we read it says... Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. What it means is that it's still continuing from the prior day whenever he'd been preaching to the people and he had asked them to put him in the boat and set him out from shore because the people were so many that they were crowding around him and this gave the opportunity for him to keep some distance from them and yet be able to preach to them all. He never left that boat. They then all went in this little entourage and they arrive on this shore. So that's the context. So what is the context? What do we learn from that? What is it that we learn when he calms the storm? That Jesus has all authority over this creation, this physical realm that we live in. They say, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? And so he calmed the storm. He exerted his authority uh, uh, divinely over this world. And then when he arrives here, the first thing he does is exert that same authority over this man in the spiritual realm. So he's demonstrated that he has all authority on earth and in heaven in the physical and the spiritual realms. He is God. And then there is two things concerning the text that I just read, especially one through 20, that I want you to recall. Uh, There were two themes kind of throughout. The first is fear, and it begins on the boat when his disciples are frightened from the storm. He calms the storm, and then it says, and they feared exceedingly. So this, far from calming them, actually accented their fear. They suddenly realized that they don't know anything about Jesus. Now, they'd seen all these miracles that he'd performed, or some miracles anyway, thus far early in his ministry that he'd performed on people. But then they see him calm a storm by speaking to it. And so they are scared to death of him. Then we arrive here, and this demoniac, and actually uh, Matthew will tell us that there were two, these demoniacs are running down to greet the boat. They're naked. At least the one is. Uh, We learn that in one of the other parallel texts. This is probably disconcerting, to say the least, to these people that are arriving by boat. They scream at the top of their lungs. So these men, or at least this one, is screaming at the top of his lungs as he gets down there. And so this, again, is fearful. But what we then learn is that it's actually the demons that are afraid. Then the people are afraid. There's a lot of fear throughout this whole story. The only one that is not afraid, I'm going to get this fly. The only one that is not afraid is Jesus himself. Everybody else in the story is afraid. The disciples that arrived with him, the, the de- uh, demons that are in this demoniac, the people that come, the swine herders that lose, everybody is afraid. And then, too, it might be rather invisible to you, but there also are a series of requests that are made in our text. And so the demons had asked to be released to go into the swine. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them into the pit or out of the country. The people then asked Jesus to leave. And then the demoniac asks uh, Jesus to take him with. So there are all these requests that are being made of Jesus. Now, I'd like to structure the sermon in, in five scenes. And they actually each start with the letter C. So it's scenes starting with a C. First... The first scene is the crazy man that comes after them. The second scene are the concerned demons, the demons concerned for their own safety, not for anybody else's. And then third, the crazy pigs. And then fourth, the concerned citizens that come from the town. And then lastly, the changed man. So we'll walk through these five scenes. First, Mark describes this crazy man, and I'm only using that euphemistically, I'm only using crazy in that sense that we would all think of someone like that who's yelling naked at the top of their lungs. Uh, I'm not not pronouncing some medical definition of craziness here. Uh, I think we'd all agree that in common vocabulary, this man would be perceived as crazy. Now, starting in verse 3, this man lived among the tombs had his dwelling place among the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And so here he is, naked, crazed, and experiencing this self-mutilation that is all too common with people who are unbalanced like this. Luke said he was naked. Matthew described him as exceedingly fierce, so fierce that no one would come that way past these two crazed demoniacs that lived up here in the tombs. Now, as you read this, it is difficult. Now, pronouns and the uh, singularity versus plurality of pronouns uh, can always be a challenge to us, although pronouns are handy. Have you ever tried to read something where people are always differentiated and no pronouns are used? It gets really tedious, always have to, uh, having to say people's proper name or attribution to them. And so instead, we all say, I, me, we, they. It's a very, very convenient thing we have in language. But it can lead to problems in trying to parse a text and in understanding who exactly is speaking or being spoken of. So we need to consider that as we read this text and as we read the parallel texts, because many commentators assume that both of these demoniacs were healed. And I myself don't see it. I don't know if in the Greek it requires it, but I don't see it based on my uh, understanding of the English and just doing some research. And I tried to study the Greek and I learned Greek 30 years ago and I've apparently forgotten a lot since then. So I don't know. Uh, that both were healed, but we know that at least the one was. It's my belief that only one actually came to be healed. The other one probably fled. So, the demoniac was physically uncontrollable, and he would repeatedly break out of his bonds, but his spiritual bondage was complete. It was the demons that drove him into the wilderness. That's how Luke puts it. In Luke 8, 8 29, we read this. He broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. We'll also hear the demon referred to as demon or demons. And I believe at points also, one demon speaks for all of them. And he, and he uses the uh, personal pronoun, I. So the demons had driven him into the wilderness or the demon. And it was the demons that chose to seize him. In, in, again in Luke 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for it had often seized him and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. So this man could break physical bonds but he could not break spiritual bonds. He was in those to that demon. So that, that's the first part, the crazy man. And now I'd like to talk about the concerned demons. So now we already know, and we read this, that the, that the demon, demoniac, actually both in Matthew, had ran when they saw the boats coming. They were running up to them. Now this is how it's put in Mark. When he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Verse six says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. Now, I'm not sure that this is worship as we know worship. It is obeisance. He did run up to Jesus and bow before him. He expressed what I would think would be more like obsequiousness, just a fear of Jesus, trembling fear, because he knows the power of this person who has just shown up on the shore. He started running at them from a distance. He comes up to them. I don't know if he recognized Jesus immediately or rather, whether it's as he gets to them, but the demoniac calls out in verse 7, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, would the demoniac know that? Would that man who's not even in his right mind, know this is Jesus, son of the most high God. Jesus has had his disciples with him for weeks or months. Do they know to call him this? Not yet. So this is not the demoniac speaking. It's not the man speaking. It is the demon that is within him. He recognizes who Jesus is. So, how could the demoniac have known this? He couldn't have. How did the demons know this? We don't know. They're not omniscient like God. They don't know all things. They're finite creatures just like we are. So how could they know this? I believe they know the scriptures better than we do. They perhaps know, have firsthand experience through uh, having been in heaven, having been created pure, what happened? So, though, though they are created like us, they are created very different from us, right? We believe that there were only a certain number of angels created at creation. They're part of the creation. God created them as sentient beings. Yet a bunch fell. Yet they've been around a long time, and so they know what's going on. And this one, this spokesman for Legion, is aware of who Christ is, Son of the Most High God. Now... When I research a text, it is always, always interesting to do the Google searches. Because there are so many people that uh, do not do proper justice to this text. I found several Episcopals that spoke to this, and they almost all, to a person, called it mental illness. This is just a mentally ill person. It's what they called it 2,000 years ago, demon possession, but we now know it as mental illness. Well, tell me, Episcopal pastor, how did this mentally ill person know that this was Jesus, son of the Most High God? That information is not in our physical realm. That is in the spiritual realm. And so, these Episcopals that call themselves Christians really are crazy people, I think. They just don't know anything about the Word of God, nor do they care to find out. They're exegesis is horrible, and their eisegesis is worse. So don't go out to Google looking for value in these things, but you can find humor in them. And (laughs) frankly, prayer concerns in them, because you feel for the people that are sitting in the congregation of such people that espouse such garbage. Now, let me read to you uh, what occurred here just a couple chapters ago in Capernaum. Mark 1. And I'll read from verses 21 to 28. Mark just hits the ground running with the stories in the gospel. Uh, Very, very uh, concise. What's funny though is he gives the longest description of the demoniac. His is much longer, much more detailed than Matthew's. It is the longest of the stories in all of the gospel of Mark. So Mark gave us a lot of detail concerning this, and this is what he wrote about concerning Capernaum. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, Jesus, and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And his fame immediately spread throughout all the region around Galilee." So. This had already occurred. I don't know exactly how much uh, time before this, but it was fairly recently, it would seem. And this demon also recognized Jesus as being the Holy One of God. Now here in our text, Jesus asks the demon's name. He had already said, come out of the man unclean spirit. And then he said, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many and then he begs not to be sent out of the country. Now, Luke and Matthew both expand on the demon's knowledge of where he is fearful to go. Luke mentions specifically an abyss, that the demons are pleading not to be sent to the abyss. And Matthew says that the demons say, are you here to banish us before the time? In other words, the time, the appointed time. So the demons know their days are numbered. They know their time is allotted to them. And yet they have a destiny to fulfill and they're seeking to fulfill it. Now, it is, I believe, torment for these demons to be in the presence of Christ. Yet it was the demons that forced the man to run down the hill to Christ. So they are reluctantly commanded to appear before him, and they are, that's why it's not worship. I mean, they're not there to, to want to be next to him. They're there because they have to be. They've been summoned. They are under authority, and Christ is exercising that authority. They've been brought immediately to his presence. They plead to be allowed to go torment others, right? Isn't that what they'll do? They're tormentors. That's what demons are. And they are tormented by being in the presence of Christ, and yet they plead with him to be allowed to go free to escape his presence, to torment others. And he agrees. They ask a request, and he agrees. And we're not yet talking about the crazy pigs. That comes next. So Jesus has granted their request. He's going to give in to it. And I say give into it, but uh, it did not appear that he needed much convincing to do what it is the demons requested. So in verse 12, let me read this. So all the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. Now this is the first time we've seen that all the demons are united in this and they appear to be trying to speak through this man at this moment. Prior to that, when the, the demon, is speaking there appears to be a spokesman speaking for them but it's like as if they they can't stay quiet anymore and there are more of them that want to speak through this man so I don't know at this point that we aren't hearing this one man speaking multiple people's pleadings to be uh, escape into the swine now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him saying send us to the swine that we may enter them And what does Jesus do? He says, go. That's what Matthew records. One word response, go. And then immediately, the herd of roughly 2,000 swine run into the sea. When, I don't know, I don't think I've read it. I forget if it's in Mark, but it said that they were afar off. That's what I believe Matthew says. And it says that they were high up. So these swine were feeding on the hillside and they were being monitored by these swine herders. And so this demoniac is pleading on the behalf of all these demons to go and enter into those swine. He says, go, they enter the swine, and then you see them charge pell-mell down this steep slope and all drown in the sea. 2,000 of these things. Why? Why did this happen? What are we to learn from this about all these demon-possessed hogs running into the ocean? You know, I used to think that it proved to me that animals had more sense than people, just like the pink panther said. Do you remember that from the pink panther? Animals have more sense than people? But I don't think that's the case. I believe what's happened is this. The whole goal of demons is to torment. And yet, just as with Job, when Satan is not free to take his life, and even initially he appeared to be not even free to personally torment Job, God then gives him authority. And he can torment Job in body, and he does. Yet, it would appear that God has placed limits on what demons can and cannot do with their human hosts. And so here, what the demons could not do with their human host, they could do with their animal host. And that is just destroy them. It's what they do, it's what they live to do. And so they did it immediately. They couldn't even wait a few minutes. Why did they want to escape into the swine in the first place? I would think it's to be protected from Christ, to be away from him, and to have the opportunity to escape further from his presence. But yet they pled with him not to send them out of the country. So for some reason, they want to remain nearby. They fear going farther, apparently, than what they're comfortable doing. He allows them to go into the swine, but the first thing the swine do is run headlong into the ocean and die. So now they're not going to live in those swine. They're no longer a living being. But yet I believe they could not resist it. It's what they do. They wanted to destroy the living being that they inhabited. And Jesus essentially had given them permission to do that. If he hadn't, it wouldn't have happened. And so he had done this. Why did Jesus allow them to go? Why did they destroy themselves immediately? Did the swine do this or did the demons choose it? Where did the demon horde go when the swine died? They didn't want to leave the country. Jesus had not restricted them, where do you think they went? Do you think it's a coincidence that the people show up the next day to ask Jesus to leave their territory? These demons want hosts and they probably found some willing hosts once they were removed from the demoniac, once they were removed from the swine. Of course, we don't know this. This is all conjecture, but yet we have to ask ourselves why? We, don't, we might not know the answer. We might not ever know the answer. I, I'm not sure that the Scripture tells us the answer to this question. But we do know something, and we ought not forget it. They are under the express authority of Christ. There is no competition. Christ does not compete with Satan for rule over anything on this earth. He never did. He never did. When he conquered death through the cross, he conquered it on our behalf. It wasn't for his own sake. We must remember that. There are many Christians, I think, that are confused on that. They think that they're like brothers. There are even aberrant uh, views of our origins that portray Christ and, and Lucifer as brothers. What silliness. It's not biblical, it's not scriptural, it's not right, it's heretical. So these demons and the main demon, referred to as the evil one or the prince of the power of the air, he is under the direct control of Jesus Christ. So now, let me close this portion by saying, none of these questions that I've asked appear to have concerned Christ. So I would say that I don't think they should concern us. He had another message for us here, and so let's go on to that. So the next one that did concern Christ were the citizens. And so now we come to the fourth scene and that is the scene involving the concerned citizens. And I've already hinted, here they come. They're coming to find out, they're here in response to what the swine herders have told them. Those tending the swine told it in the city and the country, the story says in verse 14. And so the people came to see what happened and they were afraid. Let's read that portion, let's read verse 15. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, why, why were they afraid? In in times past, they would be afraid to go to that area because they're afraid of the demoniacs that ruled it. But they know now that that's not what they have to fear, and so they come there. But now they're more afraid to see that demoniac clothed in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus because this has turned their world upside down, and they don't like it this makes them uncomfortable they began to plead with him to depart their region they didn't pick up stones to throw at this man they've dealt with this demoniac they know this man is crazy strong and yet they are going to be more fearful of the man that tamed him and so they began to plead with him to depart from their region now I want to cover two points again that I uh, came up a lot in the commentaries, came up a lot in the online uh, sermons that I, that I uh, read. And so some commentators make much of this loss of the herd of swine. And they say that the people want Jesus gone because he's bad for business. He's wreaking havoc on their financial world. Now. The loss of 2,000 pigs is probably a huge financial hit. Whomever sits with Gil after this at lunch should ask him about that. He's probably the only one of us that can see it from the financial perspective. But so, I don't see, though, that concern expressed in the text. You see them afraid when they see the demoniac clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Christ. So, the second point. So, I don't think the loss of the the swine had a lot to do with why the people wanted him gone. They were just afraid of him, afraid of his power. So the second point, some commentators also criticize and feel that these people are getting their rightful due in having mistreated the demoniac. And I just think to these people that are criticizing, what would you have done differently? Are you telling me you'd invited that demoniac into your home, maybe given him a meal? introduce them to your children? No, no. We don't do that with naked people screaming and running around the hillside. We just don't do that. And I think we have every right not to do that. So these commentators, these liberals, aren't gonna guilt me into thinking that I need to invite these crazy people into my home. But what is it that we do learn from this then? The demons had begged Jesus for permission to enter the swine. Now, the people beg Jesus to leave their land. A lot of begging going on in this text. And I think that's the illustration that we have here. That's what has disrupted their world. They want him gone. So what does Jesus do? He again accedes to their request. The very next verse says that he began to, And when he got into the boat, they began to plead with him to depart from their region, and when he got into the boat. So Jesus is saying, okay, you want me gone, I'm out of here. So he accedes to their request. And so now we go on to the next portion, the last C, which is the changed man. Jesus is now going on about his business. He's been here for probably a day and a half now. They came over apparently just to do this because Jesus knew it was gonna happen, and he wanted it done, and now they're heading on their way. When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Again, we have begging. Begging, begging, begging. Begged him that he might be with him. Luke tells us that this man had been found at Jesus' feet when those people arrived. He knows that from which he has been saved, and he is thankful to Jesus for having saved him from it. Jesus had agreed to the request of the demons. He agreed to the request of the people. But does he agree here? No, he doesn't agree here. He denies the request of this man whom he has just cleansed of the demons. However, Jesus did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. He told him to return to his friends. Now, do you think that at this point, this man had any friends left? I doubt it. He had burned those bridges years earlier, but Jesus was telling him, return to your former life before all of this evil took control of it and tell them what's happened. And so this man does return to his friends. He returns to his hometown. He covers all of Decapolis. It's, a, it's an entire region of the, of the uh, portion of the country that is between Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and off to the east. He's told all of them, and they marvel. So this man is respecting Christ and thankful enough to Christ that when he is denied the opportunity to go with Christ and remain with him like one of his disciples, he does not get petulant. He does not just brood. He takes Christ up on his command, and he does it exceedingly well. Now, what do we learn from this story? We've gone through the five C's here. We've gone through the whole story, and what is the gist of this? What do we take away from it? And I have highlighted three things. The second and the third are somewhat uh, similar. They at least build on each other. But first, we are clearly shown the compassion of Christ. I believe the whole reason he came here was to heal this demoniac, to cleanse him of these demons. When he arrives, he takes action. He banishes them. Now often, often when Jesus healed people, they came to him, right? In this instance, that's not really the case. He's come to them and the demons drive the man to be there present with Christ. This is by God's design, I believe. Jesus took action to save this man. And secondly, and this is really odd, He took pity on the demons. They were here cringing and cowering and pleading not to be sent to the abyss, not to be sent out of this country. And then when they ask him to go to the swine, he gives them what they want. Christ has compassion even on fallen angels. In addition to fallen humanity, he expresses compassion here even on fallen demons who will never be redeemed. They cannot be redeemed. They are going to the pit, and they know it, and he knows it. But yet, he excuses them from his presence because they're just there cringing and cowering, and he gives in to their request. He took pity on the people, the fearful people who come to him and say, please leave, most kind sir. And he lets himself be persuaded to leave. But then, he took action again, because even though they've made this request of him and he's acceding to it, he gives them an evangelist, this former demoniac, to change their hearts over time. So even right now, they're so afraid of him, you can understand that he has given them this man to be an advanced evangelist. uh, Post-crucifixion and resurrection, as the word is spreading, don't you think that this area would especially be appreciative of what has happened, of how much Christ loved them? Because this is not a Jewish area. There are a lot of Gentiles here. And yet in advance, he has given them an evangelist. So the first point is that Christ's compassion is throughout this whole text. Second, we learn of the depths of the condition of man, the the depths of depravity of the condition of man. Men can overcome any physical bonds. This week, I don't know if you read the news at all, but there have been all these talks about prison escapes. Prison escape in Fresno, prison escape back in Ohio. I always think to myself, are these prisons just like malls or something? Do people just come and go freely? There are always people escaping from prison and I don't understand it. But yet, I don't want to go to prison. I've never been in prison. I don't know how they find it so easy to get out myself. And frankly, if you're a prisoner, I think that you'd like to be a prisoner in Ohio because this week there were three escapes in Ohio. (laughs) So apparently they have very porous prisons in Ohio. But men can escape the oppression and the imprisonment, the incarceration that other men bring upon them. But there is absolutely no escape to the spiritual bondage that we are all in as a side effect of the fall. None of us can escape that apart from God's intervening. Men in bondage to or under the influence of sin isolate themselves. Now this man, it says that the demons drove him into the tombs area, drove him into isolation, but he would have sought that anyway because of his being ostracized from society. Proverbs 18.1 says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. And that's exactly what that man was doing in this desolate area. But how does the story end? He is an evangelist visiting every city and town and uh, the countryside of Decapolis. An area consisting of probably 150 or 200 square miles or more, maybe a lot more. I don't know how big that area was, but not only is he not seeking to just be by himself off in this wilderness of tombs, but now he's God's evangelist, out preaching and influencing wherever uh, his legs will carry him in obedience to Christ's direction. And so the third one is along these same lines. And let me read to you. Everybody should be very familiar with this text. Paul wrote to Timothy, and in 2 Timothy 2.24, he wrote this, "'A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, "'but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, "'in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, "'if God perhaps will grant them repentance, "'so that they may know the truth, "'and that they may come to their senses "'and escape the snare of the devil, "'having been taken captive by him to do his will.'" The story of the Gadarene demoniac is the story of salvation for everybody. Everybody who is saved experiences what this Gadarene demoniac experiences. We may identify more with the people, the townspeople, going out there to ask this man to leave, curious about what has happened, yes, but fearful when we see that this tremendous miracle has occurred and want him to leave. And yet, we are more like the demoniac. We are caught up in sin and need to be freed from them. The townspeople are more like the demoniac, caught up in sin and needing to be freed from them. They think they're as different from that demoniac as night and day, but they're not. That is the moral of this story. We're talking about salvation from the bondage of sin, and they're all in it the demoniac as well as the people of the city that come to ask Jesus to leave. Jesus comes unbidden to those who have been cut off from his grace, and he breaks the bonds of the evil one to whom we are enslaved through our own sinful nature and by preference, because we would prefer to go with Satan into sin than with God into heaven, given our druthers, because we don't want to be with God in our fallen state. But so he breaks those bonds, frees us up to follow him, to sit at his feet, clothed and in our right minds. The people that asked Jesus to leave were in bondage to evil no less than the demoniac, and they had far more in common with him than they ever realized. And though they asked Jesus to leave their presence, he left behind this witness because he loved them. So we who are saved are witnesses, just as this former demoniac are, to the grace of God at work in our lives. And we are beholden to God through thankfulness and through the mission that we all share. It's not just the apostles and the disciples that were charged with sharing their faith. We all are. And so we all must reach out to the lost whether they are the demoniacs or whether they are the people of the city, we reach out to them with the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of how your power is absolutely necessary to escape spiritual bondage. We may deceive ourselves into thinking that we can escape it at any point in time, but even we Christians, who are caught up in sin know that we are powerless against sin, against Satan, against the pull of the flesh. It is only your Holy Spirit within us that has the power to have us resist. So Lord, we pray that for the fallen and the lost and for us the saved, we pray, Lord, that you would break the bondage of sin and the power of this depravity of evil that can so corrupt a society and tear it down. We thank you now, Lord, and we pray that uh, we would serve you faithfully and that as your children, we would be dutiful, that we would obey you, and that we would not be petulant, that we would not insist upon our way, but that we would be respectful and faithful and obedient children, and that we would do your will on this earth. We thank you now for this opportunity to do just that in the week ahead in Christ's name and for his sake, amen.